Hello and welcome back to season one of the Medici podcast. Today's episode is The Duke's Bride and God's Banker. listeners for your patience. Um, not only was I sick the last week, but I also had one of those times when all the deadlines in your personal and professional life all seem to converge at once in a conspiracy to kill you or drive you insane. But I think I'm over the worst of it. Uh, and hopefully we'll be back on a normal schedule and be able to wrap up season one in time. Uh, I do plan on taking an extended break after season one just because it seems like a good time for a break. And also because uh, I'll need time to catch up on the next round of research. But it shouldn't be that long and I'll keep you all posted. With that said, uh, let's go ahead and get started. This time, I'm going to zoom out a bit. I do try to keep this from turning into the Northern Italy or the History of Florence podcast. But we're at a point where two events that initially had nothing to do with the Medici would end up having ramifications that would completely shape the family's future. Let's start with the event that would have a much less obvious impact, at least for now. In Milan, we have a June wedding in 1389. Well, it really wasn't a wedding because the vows had been exchanged months earlier by proxy, with both the spouses to be saying their vows before a priest and foreign dignitaries. Instead of a nice dinner party and a reception, the bride, Valentina Visconti, had what I dare suspect was a traumatic day. She was being sent off to a foreign country to spend the rest of her life under the power of a man she'd never met. Even her father, Duke Jean Galeazzo of Milan, who had always doted on her, did not show up to comfort her during her departure. He found the prospect of facing his daughter before being sent away over to Alps for good, too much to bear. Valentina was extremely well-educated even by the standards of the nobility, fluent in Italian, Latin, French, and German. And throughout her life, she would sponsor the work of poets. Her own clan, the Visconti, were also at the peak of their power. The Visconti had ruled Milan as signores for over 70 years by her lifetime. But John Galeazzo was the first Duke of Milan, having literally bought the title from the German king when caseless. But joining the ranks of Europe's titled monarchs wasn't enough. John Galeazzo wanted to piece together the old kingdom of northern Italy. And he and the Visconti arguably came the closest to doing that out of all of their rivals. 
but to finish the job, he would need foreign support. That support was supposed to come from Valentina's groom, Louis, Duke of Terrain, although he's much better known by his later title, the Duke of Orleans. So, for the sake of convenience, I'll just refer to him as Louis de Orleans. He was the paternal uncle of King Charles VI of France, and like so many heirs to spare in the French royal family, he dedicated his life to making deals with foreign rulers and butting into armed conflicts to try to get a kingdom of his own. In Louis's case, this was the Kingdom of Adria. Named after the Adriatic Sea, Adria was a hypothetical land the Pope promised to carve out of papal territories in northeastern Italy in exchange for Louis siding with the Pope in Avignon against the Pope in Rome. More on the too many popes thing in a bit. For now, Louis also had a claim on the Kingdom of Naples, so to help him grab at least one little slice of Italy, he married Valentina Visconti to cement an alliance with Duke John Galeazzo. But there is also a little bit of apprehension. The whole reason Valentina couldn't leave for her husband's arms was because John Galeazzo was waiting to see if his new wife, his cousin Caterina, would give birth to a long-anticipated male heir. And she did so, giving John Galeazzo a son. Now not having to worry about handing over a daughter with a claim to his duchy over to the French, Jean Galeazzo kindly informed the French that he could now send Valentina over the border, now that all the <clears throat> security issues were resolved. Even by the standards of royal marriages that were performed long distance and were designed just to help fulfill short-term military and political projects, the marriage was a disaster. It was not just because neither Louis de Orléans and Jean Galeazzo got their Italian kingdoms. It was also because Louis de Orléans treated his wife like an obnoxious roommate, just one you occasionally had children with. No doubt it didn't help that Louis de Orléans was a Lothario whose favorite lover was none other than the Queen of France, his nephew's wife, Isabeau of Bavaria. Nor did it help that Isabeau and Valentina quickly became bitter rivals. When King Charles VI had some kind of breakdown, after which he suffered intense hallucinations and violent outbursts, Isabeau spread the rumor that Charles VI's madness was a symptom of a poison given to him by Valentina, who wanted him to die or be deposed so she could become the Queen of France. The rumor spread so widely that Valentina found her home under attack by one of history's greatest and most recurring actors, an angry Parisian mob. For the sake of her <clears throat> safety, her husband sent her away from Paris. She would never return, and instead died at the age of 37 in 1408 at her husband's main estate, the Chateau des Bois. Despite Louis's preference for his nephew's wife, the couple did have four children, including a male heir. At least Valentina may have gotten some satisfaction from not only outliving her husband by about a year, but learning that he was brutally stabbed to death on the streets of Paris by agents of his cousin and rival, 
John the Fearless, Duke of Burgundy. So what does this have to do with our story exactly? Well, the marriage would, in the end, not just affect the unhappy couple. See, John Galeazzo, when he refused to send Valentino away as soon as possible, was acting under completely justified motives. Tucked away in the marriage agreement between France and Milan was a clause that in the absence of any living legitimate male Visconti, Valentina would become the heiress to the duchy, with the implication that her claim would pass on to any children she and Louis might have. Now, no one could have possibly known this at the time, and it was hardly inevitable, but in the centuries to come, this one part of the marriage agreement would be one step in the path toward the end of Italian independence. But for now, Italy and Europe had been facing a crisis of political and spiritual dimensions, the Great Schism. Pope Urban VI, the humble and genuinely devout Neapolitan, who brought the papacy back to Rome, turned out to be a bust. For one thing, no doubt in response to the reputation for extravagance the papal court got into in Avignon. He cut down drastically on expenditures, even forcing all cardinals to have only one course and one main dish at lunch and dinner. Historian Stefan Weiss observes, quote, One can now understand why some of the cardinals thought he had suddenly gone mad. But to be fair to the cardinals, Urban also had a habit of screaming at the cardinals who enraged him. And at least once the cardinal had to restrain him from striking another cardinal with his bare hands. Even one of his most vocal supporters, the mystic Catherine of Siena, had to write to him, urging him to take her advice. Go about your work with moderation and benevolence and a tranquil heart. For the love of Jesus crucified, Holy Father, soften a little the sudden movements of your temper. Sadly, even her sanctified words didn't stick with the short-tempered Pope. The very summer of the year he was elected, 1378, the French cardinals started leaving Rome claiming that the heat of the Roman summer was unbearable. As it turned out, all the cardinals leaving Rome were just moving to the town of Anani, not far southeast of Rome. There, on August 9th, the French cardinals declared that the election of Urban VI was made under duress, which, to be fair, it was, but it was hardly the first papal election carried out under the watch of an enraged mob. But in any case... They argued that, in this instance, it made Urban's papacy invalid. So Urban was to be considered excommunicated, and they would hold another legitimate conclave to elect a legitimate pope. Luckily, they didn't have to go back to France to find a friendly sponsor. Queen Joanna of Naples was more than happy to sponsor their election. At first, she had been a huge supporter of Urban, who was formerly one of her subjects, after all. But as it turns out, the guy who beat up cardinals who disagreed with him 
also had a bad habit of alienating monarchs. So it didn't take long for Joanna to decide that, after all, it was better for her and her kingdom to have a pope away in Avignon rather than as a next-door neighbor. She invited the anti-urban cardinals to hold their conclave in her city of Fondi. There, they elected another Frenchman and a cousin of the French royal family, Robert of Geneva, as Pope Clement VII. From Naples, Clement VII and his cardinals made their way over the sea back to Avignon. The days of the Avignon papacy had returned, except this time. There's also a pope in Rome claiming he was actually the true pope. The great schism of the Catholic Church had begun and wouldn't be resolved for almost 40 years. Personally, I like Catherine of Siena's reaction to the news, which comes out of a letter she wrote to Pope Urban. In my opinion, these devils incarnate have not elected a Christ on earth, but it brought into being an antichrist against you, who are Christ on earth. And honestly, there was a lot of ambivalence at first, even from the French. There had been many rival popes before, but still, backing one newly minted pope against a duly elected and anointed pope was a risky maneuver, especially if this new pope didn't happen to have a Holy Roman Emperor in his corner. Thankfully for all the haters, Urban VI did cause no favors. For instance, Urban went after Joanna I with a vengeance, reopening an old charge that she was the mastermind behind the assassination of her first husband, Andre of Hungary, and using it as an excuse to replace her with her cousin, Charles of Durazzo, who eventually had her strangled to death. Then Urban suddenly turned on Charles when he dragged his feet on a promise to give Urban's nephew a title and land in his kingdom. Urban also came close to losing the support of the King of England when he nearly had the one English cardinal at the papal court tortured, along with five other cardinals on suspicion of secretly supporting Clement VII. Soon enough, just about every king, prince, duke, and republic in Europe of any importance had picked sides, and after some switching sides, stuck with their preferred papal court for decades. But, of course, the leaders of Europe all deeply searched their hearts and consulted ecclesiastical authorities as to which of these two men were truly Jesus Christ's representative on earth. Just kidding. Who backed which pope completely broke down according to political alliances and interests and rivalries. For example, England backed the pope in Rome just because their enemy France was behind the pope in Avignon. And the Spanish kingdom of Castile, after trying to be neutral, threw its weight behind Avignon because England was at the time scheming to invade Castile and put an English royal John of Gaunt, on the throne. So in one corner with the Pope in Rome was England, Bohemia, the Holy Roman Emperors, and maybe a majority of the German princes, Hungary, Poland, Lithuania, the Scandinavian Kingdoms, the Republic of Venice, and Portugal. 
On the other side of the ring, we have France, Burgundy, Brittany, Scotland, Castile, Aragon, Navarre, Savoy, Milan, Florence, Bologna, Naples, Sicily, Cyprus, and the Knights of Rhodes behind the Pope and Avignon. But as easy as it is for us jaded moderns to view the whole thing as just another political conflict and religious clothing, it was so much more than that to many people alive at the time. To quote Barbara W. Tuckman in her book, A Distant Mirror, The Calamitous 14th Century. When each pope excommunicated the followers of the other, who could be sure of salvation? Every Christian found himself under penalty of damnation by one or the other pope, with no way of being sure that the one he obeyed was the genuine one. People might be told that the sacraments of their priest were not valid because he had been ordained by the other pope, or that the holy oil for baptism was not sanctified because it had been blessed by a schismatic bishop. In disputed regions, double bishops might be appointed, each holding mass and proclaiming the ritual of the other of sacrilege. It's almost certainly not a coincidence that the two great heretical movements of the Middle Ages, that both challenged the principles of papal authority, the Lollards of England and the Hussites of Bohemia, both came out of the era of the Great Schism. A more worldly side effect of the Great Schism was that both popes and their respective clergies were always strapped for cash. Both popes, after all, could only count on the religious ties coming in from the countries controlled by their supporters, and neither pope could claim full control of the territories of the papacy. It didn't help that both papal courts went overboard on spending on pomp and ceremony, since no one could look at a pope who couldn't even pay for a decent procession and think he was the vicar of Christ. So churches across Europe were closed due to lack of funds, and priests, monks, and nuns were reduced to selling crosses and relics to stay afloat. And most importantly for our story, the popes relied on loans from international bankers more than ever before. International bankers like Vieri di Cambio de Medici. Now, we've met Vieri briefly before. Along with his brother Giovanni, they were the only ones among the well-off Medici cousins to not switch from business and finance to landowning and real estate in response to the economic chaos of their times. Over time, Vieri became wealthier than his landowning cousins. And this wealth wasn't wasted, at least as far as Vieri's sense of family obligation was concerned. Vieri had another cousin we haven't met yet. Beachy, who was, at least by his standards and those of other branches of the family, positively impoverished. He only had a few shops around Florence, renting their buildings from him, and a small farm out in the countryside. Beachy died in a resurgence of the plague in the spring of 1363, and afterward his widow, Jacopa, and her nine children moved in with cousin Foligno. But Vieri did his part too by offering Beachy's two eldest sons, Francesco and Giovanni, apprenticeships with his bank. Within just a few years, they were made junior partners. 
In the meantime, Vieri, after the death of his first wife, had married a second and much younger woman, Bice Strozzi. This woman gave him heirs, two sons named Nicola and Cambio. Luckily for cousin Bici's sons, Vieri did not leave them out in the cold in order to favor his biological children. After all, he was by then 68 years old and wasn't optimistic enough to think that his sons would be old enough to run his bank after he died. So Vieri divided the Medici bank into three separate businesses, selling one to Francesco, another to Giovanni, and the third to a nephew of his, Antonio. But that office soon closed. Once he retired from banking, Vieri went into politics. This excited the hopes of populists who wanted him to take over his cousin Salvestro's legacy. However, unlike the rest of his family, Vieri was loyal to Maso degli Albizzi and the conservative cause. Although whether he remained loyal out of genuine ideological conviction or because he didn't want to make waves that could threaten his family's businesses is unclear. Either way, one contemporary noted, quote, If Vieri had been more ambitious, he could have made himself prince of the city. Events would eventually prove, though, that Vieri was probably right. When other Medici got involved in a failed assassination plot against Maso degli Albizzi, every single member of the Medici family was barred from political office. But exemptions were officially granted to Vieri, his two sons, and his relatives and colleagues, Francesco and Giovanni, because of his loyalty to the regime. Vieri finally died on September 14, 1395, leaving a huge inheritance to his sons. In a way, though, Vieri's true heir was his former apprentice, Giovanni di Bici who after the death of his older brother Francesco in 1402 was poised to make the Medici bank even more of a success than it was in Vieri's day. In a way though, Vieri's true heir was his former apprentice Giovanni di Bici, who after the death of his older brother Francesco in 1402 was poised to make the Medici bank even more of a success than it was in Vieri's day. There's no reason to think that Giovanni di Bici wasn't a savvy businessman. In fact, in all likelihood, he was. But it's also obvious he owed a lot of his success to the opportunity of a lifetime. A friendship he struck up in 1403 when the Signora of Florence appointed him as ambassador to Bologna, then under the control of a papal governor named Cardinal Baldassare Cosa. Cosa had come from even more humble beginnings than Giovanni de Bici. Two of his brothers were executed for being pirates, and he himself started adulthood as a soldier with rather mysterious ties to local bandits. But he did go on to study law at the University of Bologna and then joined the church. We don't know exactly how the former soldier turned ambitious clergyman met the banker who was plucked by his family out of relative poverty. But already by 1404, about a year after their first meeting, Giovanni records in his ledger making a hefty loan of 8,937 florins to Cosa, 
Meanwhile, Cosa was already addressing Giovanni in letters as his, quote, very dear friend. They were indeed very dear to each other. As Cosa rose through the ranks of the church, he allegedly profited personally from introducing clergy in debt to his good friend Giovanni de Bici and other moneylenders. One hostile source even alleged that Cosa was only appointed cardinal because Giovanni de Medici greased all the right palms. If true, it was actually a brilliant investment. See, there had been a misguided attempt to end the Great Schism by electing a new pope and forcing the two old popes to step down. But, shockingly, the two popes refused to resign. This all actually resulted in a third pope, who was based in northern Italy, Alexander V, who, after his death in 1410, was succeeded by Cardinal Cosa, who took the name John XXIII. The new Pope John XXIII, of course, did not forget Giovanni, who then became the official banker of the papacy. When Pope John had to fight a war against the Kingdom of Naples, it was to Giovanni he had to turn to in order to help pay for the war and help pay for the 95,000 foreign peace indemnity he had to pay after losing. The good times, though, such as they were, only lasted for about three years. A new papal council, the Council of Constance, which was set up to finally resolve this whole mess, declared all three popes deposed. John XXIII responded rather the way you'd think someone who rubbed elbows with pirates and bandits would. He disguised himself as a postman and fled the city. He wound up a prisoner in southern Germany, but Giovanni bailed him out. He may have also played a role in John XXIII's moving things over with the church and getting a new job as Cardinal Bishop of Frascati. In the meantime, Pope Gregory XII in Rome quietly resigned as soon as possible. The Avignon Pope Benedict XIII fled to Spain, refusing to give up, but by the time of his death, the only country that still recognized him as Pope was Aragon, so it really didn't matter anyway. And as we saw, John XXIII was promptly neutralized. That left room for the most recently elected Pope, Martin V, to be recognized as the sole genuine oracle. The Great Schism was indeed over. And unfortunately, the new sole Pope preferred to do his banking with someone other than the Medici, the sacrilegious cash cow that was the Great Schism, was gone forever. But honestly, it didn't even matter by that point. Giovanni's brief tenure as the Pope's banker, or more accurately, a Pope's banker, had made him a lot of money, making him wealthier, even than his benefactor Vieri's sons were, while setting on their father's fortune. But perhaps for Giovanni, the real sign of how far he had gotten from the boy who had to be taken in by cousins was his role in giving a bronze statue to Florence's banking guild. The statue was of St. Matthew, the traditional patron saint for bankers and moneylenders. Giovanni could brag and point to the fact that he contributed the most to the construction of the statue, more than any of Florence's other 
older banking dynasties. At last, Medici had truly cracked the ranks of Florence's wealthy. But now, Giovanni probably asked himself, where should he go now? And by the way, didn't making all that money from loans make him a sinner in God's eyes? Join us next time as I continue the story with Giovanni de Bici and also look at what it meant to be a capitalist in 15th century Italy. Be sure to check out MediciPodcast.com for maps, bibliographies, and more. There you'll also find ways to support me and the podcast through Patreon or with one-time payments. Remember, I'm yet another underemployed and underpaid millennial, so it counts as charity. Also, it helps me keep the podcast going through buying books for research and upgrading my equipment. Thanks for listening, and buona notte.